AM 640. I was born this way. You've got Dr. Wendy Walsh with you for the next two hours. And you know where I just came from? Can't you tell by the music? I've been at LA Pride on behalf of iHeartRadio all day. And let me tell you, there's a party going on in Los Angeles today. They estimated that tens of thousands of people would show up at the Pride Festival in West Hollywood. I I don't know. I'm bad at counting heads, but it looked like hundreds of thousands to me. And we had a great time on the iHeartRadio party float. Although I must say, I'm probably not the demographic to be dancing on a flatbed trailer with a bunch of people wearing bathing suits and glitter for a few hours in the hot sun. But I did it. I was a trooper to show my support. Uh, Monique Marvez was there. Ellen Kay was there. We we just had a blast. Um, so I'm back and calm down and happy to be in an air-conditioned studio. <laughs> it was a wee tad hot out there. Uh, so if you went to Pride today, thank you and enjoy. You're probably still there partying. You may be driving home. Uh, get ready to hit the brake pedal. There's a little bit of traffic coming out of West Hollywood. I know it took me a while, to, even just to get over the hill to Burbank. So uh, if you are on traffic, calm down. We got lots of good news for you. Okay, coming up in the show today. Uh, what do we have coming up? Oh, this is our week for my drive-by makeshift dream therapy. And Joey, I know that you actually have a dream. I do, I do. So uh, I'm I'm only sort of kind of hoping that our callers take a few minutes to come on the line because then I'll have time to hear your dream. Dish out the goods. Dish out the goods because I want to hear your dream. That's coming up at 4.30. <laughs> uh, then I have an amazing therapist who's going to talk about how and where our bodies hold trauma and the body work that many therapists are practicing now that can help release our mental anguish. Finally, uh, at 5.30, an interesting chat about intergenerational psychology. I am so fascinated with some of the latest research on intergenerational trauma. In other words, you could be suffering from the effects of trauma that happened to your ancestors. And I'll explain more when we get there. First, uh, as I mentioned, tens of thousands of people turned out for the L.A. Pride Festival. And it celebrated... The LGBTQ community, which is actually pretty much all of us now. <laughs> I mean, I'm just all like, inclusive. It is so inclusive. You wouldn't believe it. It's just about celebrating people, I think. Uh, basic terminology for you. You don't know. LGBTQ is an acronym. Stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. And queer can mean a lot of things. You're going to have to Google that one. Uh, some people use the Q to mean questioning. That's what I heard too. That yeah, they're still not quite sure where they land. Yeah. Here's the thing. So human beings have two things when it comes to sexual orientation. First of all, we have the widest range of sexual behaviors of any primate out there, probably any animal, because sex isn't just used for procreation historically in the human species. It's also used because we're such a social creature. It's used for different kinds of bonding. It's used for an exchange system. Believe it or not, I know you think that exchanging sex for money is illegal, wrong, and immoral. I don't know if you think that, but some people think that. Uh, but people exchange sex all the time for love, for housework, for child rearing, for um, care, sick care, um, for intellectual stimulation. There are all kinds, you know, a relationship is an exchange of care. And there are many ways that we care for each other as human beings. 
It may be financial care. It may be domestic responsibilities care, maybe actual physical care, sickness, um, and, and it may be sexual care. So our sexualities are fascinating because they run along two scales. There's the scale of behavior, what we actually do in the world, and then the scale of what we fantasize about. So if you know a little bit about the Kinsey scale, which looks at a scale of one to six, uh, at one end of the scale, you've got somebody that would be considered completely heterosexual, meaning that in both behavior and fantasy and thought, they're heterosexual. And then at the other end of the scale, you might find somebody who is completely homosexual, meaning in fantasy and behavior, that's how their sexuality plays out. But in the middle between those two are the rest of us. Because sexuality lies on a very wide gray scale between behavior and, um, and, and fantasy. And also, sexuality, when it comes to things like the pride event, is sometimes intertwined with identity, but not always. For instance, when we look at health studies, because I teach psychology of health counseling at Cal State Channel Islands, and we look at transmission, for instance, of HIV and AIDS, and we will say, oh, well, the highest transmission uh, tends to be men who have sex with men, MSM, men who have sex with men. And I always say to my class, why do we not call them gay men? Joey, do you know why the answer is? No clue. What are men who have sex with men? They are men who may not self-identify as gay, but still may have sexual relations with same-sex partners from time to time. Or they may have situational homosexuality, you know, prisons, military, convents, same-sex schooling with dorms. These are situational times where people may, but they don't self-identify that way. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do some teaching, uh, some English teaching, and some of my students, I had some Saudi Arabian students, and mm -hmm. they told me that there's kind of a category of guy over there in Saudi Arabia who certainly does not identify as gay or homosexual, even though he engages in homosexual sex, but the reason is, is because he is only ever the giver. He's never the quote-unquote ah, receiver. So depending so on the kind of sexual mind, behavior. Yeah. Exactly. They ask me, you know, oh, is he gay? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> you know, ask an American, they'll give you his, they'll probably tell you, yeah. Um, but to them, you know, it, it's right. not. It's I also, while cultural. I'm very, very happy that, uh, you know, gay rights and, you know, our love and appreciation and understanding of our gay brothers and sisters has come into the forefront in the media, I actually prefer the LGBTQ moniker because it is more inclusive of everybody. And there are so many bisexual humans out there um, and they don't know where they fit in. And, and again, it doesn't have to be identity. You can be walking around feeling, looking, whatever that means, <laughs> completely straight and have behavior another way. And you don't have to self-identify. It doesn't matter. Just, you know what? Love somebody and be loved. That's what matters. Speaking of which, uh, in the news this week... Um, Sad news about Anthony Bourdain, who um, sadly died, took his own life. And there's been much speculation about what happened to him. But I would rather not talk about people who have committed suicide for a main reason, is that um, suicide rates tend to go up when we spend a lot of time talking about it. But when we come back, I would like to invite on uh, a member of our iHeartRadio family, someone who works here, uh, who's written a book about her brother's suicide. And let's talk about prevention instead of glorifying the lives of those who suffered and got out of their pain through taking their own life. 
That's next when we come back on KFI AM 640. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Larry Perel has the news for us. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I'm going to take things down a little bit because I have a very special guest in the studio, Katie Williams. Katie, you are an iHeart employee. I am. That's exciting. You've been in the building longer than I have. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of cool. But we're here on a somber note because I wanted Katie to come and tell her story a little bit and talk about her book because it will lead me into something that I think is very important. And it is how we discuss news events where somebody who is obviously suffering from depression uh, takes their own life, whether that is somebody, um, a high-profile person or not. And I have been doing a lot of research, Katie, and finding that one of the dangers of reporting these kinds of stories is that it actually increases suicide rates. And I know you're well aware of that. Right. But you have a personal story of loss that you've turned into something very positive that I didn't want to ignore. Thank you. So tell me about your book. I started, so my brother died. He died by suicide at age 17. And a year later, I started journaling just to help myself process and get through it. And I was convinced I would hide this journal under my bed and never show anyone. And about three and a half years after writing, I was encouraged by friends to publish it to help others. And so now that's what I've been doing. I've been sharing the warning signs so that other people can recognize them and save a life and publish this book to show people you're not alone and there's hope and you can get through this just like my family did. And before we talk, and there's lots of good wisdom and you were a really smart 17 year old. I just want to say. Thank you. (laughs) You didn't edit it and like turn it into grown up woman words. I wanted it to be raw, unedited as much as possible to retain the voice of yeah, myself as a It's a beautiful teenager. book, and I've been reading it bit by bit beside my bed. And before we get into the warning signs, and you're here partly because it is Suicide Awareness Month, and this is the problem, is that we want people to be aware, but we also don't want to at all glamorize this. You know, one of the ways to shape human behavior, one of the best ways to shape human behavior, if you're trying to get them to recycle more or eat healthier, is to create social inclusion. In other words, the stars do it. The cool people do it. People like you do it. But the dark side of that kind of behavior shaping is that when you talk about people who have taken their own lives, you can increase suicide rates. So let's go over some of, I like to call them the rules for media. And this is all research-based. Science has looked at this closely. Um, When the media provide sensational coverage of the suicide, descriptions of the suicide that provide how-tos for people. Not good. We shouldn't do this, of course. Um, And when we speak highly of the person who died, who was released from their pain, another vulnerable person out there might hear that and think, oh, they'll talk nice about me after I'm gone because they're not doing it now. Right. right. It's unfortunate. It is is a hard thing. I mean, use, for example, um, how the New York Times covered the death of Kurt Cobain. They did it the right way. Their headline was Kurt Cobain, hesitant poet of grunge rock, dead at 27. L- years later, when news broke of Robin Williams, you couldn't control the Internet. And somebody made a meme uh, depicting Disney's Aladdin character saying, you're free now, genie. 
And consequently, within the three months period of that meme being created, suicide rates went up by 10%. Yeah, it's not good. After Marilyn Monroe died, they increased by 12%. So celebrity suicides, of course, outsize this effect. So we have to be really careful because there are vulnerable people out there. And the more exposure to media reporting of people taking their own lives, um, the more it goes up. So let's focus on helping. If you're listening... If you have yourself intrusive suicidal thoughts, especially in a period of a few months after the suicide of somebody you admired, like a certain Swedish DJ, um, you need to reach out for help. You need to call a suicide hotline. You need to get to a doctor. You need to let people around you know what you're feeling. So for those of us who are on the outside of that, that's my message to those who are suffering, to those family members and friends, what are the warning signs, Katie? Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to talk about it. I'll just start with the hotline because, as you just mentioned, anyone that is starting to think about suicide or if you've heard someone say they might take their life, this hotline is not only if you're thinking about suicide, but also if you want to help somebody who you think might be thinking about suicide. And this is the phone number that Logic Song made so popular. It's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-8255, 24-7. It's national, so they can direct you to local resources. 273-8255. That's right. And, yeah, just as far as warning signs, it's it's ironic almost. So my brother used to say, well, I'll just kill myself, you know, and I never took him seriously because I thought it sounded like a throwaway line. Right. Right. And I thought, oh, you're you're young. You know, it's just he was 17. I thought you're just having a moment right now. You're upset about something. It's going to go away. You're not going to feel like this tomorrow or later today. So one of the top, you know, one of the main things to be aware of is people saying that they're going to take their life, a feeling of being a burden to others, hopelessness, feeling cornered, feeling like there's no way out, and then behavior. So that's if they talk about it. And then there's behaviors. There's things like isolating from family and friends, increased use of drug and alcohol, and even things like giving away personal possessions, making phone calls, setting your affairs in order. All of those are warning signs because it's somebody that is really taking their last steps, you know, making those calls and visits to basically say goodbye. One of the most fascinating, one might think counterintuitive um, sign of suicide is a sudden period of happiness right. after being so depressed and so anxious for so long. And so people think, and you'll hear this all the time from survivors, they'll be like, but I thought they were getting better yep. because they were so happy in the last few weeks. And I mean, that's a hard one to call. It's hard because... Often, and what you know, what I've learned through now the almost 19 years that my brother has since passed in my volunteering and just even in my research, unfortunately, that that uptick and that mood lift you're talking about often occurs after the person has decided to take their life and they feel relieved. Yep, they get which, this sense of relief, like okay, I figured out how I'm going to solve my problems now. Right, and um, I don't want to discount, you know, by asking you to not talk too much about your brother's situation. I don't want to discount the pain and grief that you went through and your book journals it in very, in a, in a beautiful way. Um, do you wonder sometimes if somebody knew how much it would hurt their family, that it could prevent them? I sometimes think about 
this tunnel vision. And again, I learned a lot more of this through volunteering and working with other families who lost a loved one to suicide. And what I learned is this common thread that I kept hearing from other families. And it's like, this person was very loved and they knew they were so loved, but they got this tunnel vision where the only thing they could see is a way out of their pain. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people, people who will, for example, say something like, Oh, well, I'll just kill myself. No one believes them because they look at them from the outside and they say, but, Oh, they're so outgoing and they're so upbeat and they're the life of the party. Why would, or they have children, they never would, or they've had a great life. They never would. When actually statistics tell us that middle age males, white males are the most, uh, is the demographic that takes their life most often. So we can't take it on the surface. If someone says they're going to kill themselves, that's what we have to take seriously. Exactly. So the book is called Journey of the Heart, a 17-year-old's journal after losing her brother to suicide by Katie Williams. You can find it online. Amazon. It's a good read. And I just want to reiterate, because we have to wrap up, if you're listening and you have any intrusive suicidal thoughts, especially in a period following a public person who has taken their life, someone you admired, I need you to ask for help. I want you to call that suicide hotline. What is the number again? 1-800-273-8255. 273-8255. Call a doctor. Um, tell people around you that you're suffering because we want you here with us. Okay? That's right. Um, and Katie, thank you for coming in. It's thank always you a so pleasure much. to meet people in other parts of the building. That's you're, right. You're upstairs? I'm going to come by your desk and say hi sometime. I'm on your floor, so we'll swing around the corner. Where are you, down there? I'm really close. Yeah, oh right around God. the corner. I'm going to go see you all the time. Perfect. I have a new person to go visiting with. Great. Um, good to see you. Thank you so much for coming by during this important month, Thank Suicide you. Awareness Month. Thank you so much. All right. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh. I'll be right back. But first, Lair Perel, you got some news for us? KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. You have a weird dream? You want me to weigh in on what I think it is? This segment is what I call my drive-by makeshift dream analysis. And so if you have a dream you want to share with us, the phones are open now, and the number is 1-800-520-1KFI. That is 1-800-520-1534. You know, back when I had a private practice, honestly, dream therapy was my favorite thing to do because it was seemed to me such an easy way to access the unconscious. And of course, to do proper dream therapy, you don't do it for entertainment on the radio. You, you actually have clients continue to write their dreams, bring them in, tell you the dreams. You ask them about the dreams. You start to, uh, you start to connect the dots a little bit about the dreams. Um, And eventually, you know, Freud called our dream life the royal road to the unconscious. And it's pre-conscious material, he thought. In other words, the conscious wasn't quite ready to hear it yet. So it told it over and over in different kinds of metaphors. And dreams are really feelings with pictures. So if you've had a dream, give us a call at 1-800-520-1KFI. Uh, Joey, do you have a dream you wanted to share with me? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I did actually have a uh, a dream featuring uh, myself and Dr. Wendy Walsh. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah. Is this dream like okay for radio? Yeah, it's a uh, family friendly. <laughs> family friendly. It's, uh, it's it's rated G. Okay. I would say, yeah. Maybe PG because of the stress involved. Oh, but, yeah. the old colleague dream. Yeah. Okay, so tell me what happened in your dream. So yeah, it was it, it wasn't that bad, but it was believe it or not right where we are right now in this kind of situation. I dreamt that you were in your studio there. Uh-huh. Uh we were getting ready for your show, but I I had something uh, like an emergency happened and I wasn't going to be able to to produce your show. Uh-oh. And yeah, and I started freaking out. <laughs> so I was in here in this in our side kind of production studio, just kind of, and I felt so bad. And I'm like, no, Doctor Wendy, oh my gosh, she was the show's going to crash. And then I woke up. And then you woke up. So <laughs> yeah. uh, d- tell me the feelings you had in this dream. I mean, uh, uh, it, it was anxiety, uh, straight up. And I what did you fear? What would happen? This is going to sound so childish, but it's something that's just inside me. Maybe it goes across other people. I just the feeling of uh, I was going to get in trouble. You know, for for not being able to nail everything that I needed to do. Right. And I will say, because I know you, that you are very conscientious. But, and we've talked about this on the air before, that you have a little ADHD. Yes. So I would say the underbelly of ADHD is always worrying that you're going to fail, that you're going to lack focus. And, Joey, I'm sure when you were a child, before you were diagnosed, there were a lot of teachers who were punitive to you. Yeah. Because of your invisible disability. And right. so I think this is just an echo of it. I hope it's not. There's someone on the phone, Joey. Go answer the phone, would you? Uh, <laughs> um, so if you have a dream that you want to call about, it's 1-800-520-1534. Sleep is very important to the human mind, to our psyche. It's almost like it's the brain's laundry cycle. Sleep actually functions to sort of clean out the mess of the day. Literally, during sleep, our blood vessels, um, and they flush out metabolic, metabolic buildup from the day, and they remove neurotoxins. Uh, they even distribute components that enhances cellular repair. Uh, a good sleep can reduce inflammation. Uh, a good sleep can help us calm ourselves. Um, now, people complain about not being able to get enough sleep, and in fact, insomnia is one of the things that people report a lot um, when they go to therapy. Hey, we have Jennifer on the line. Hi, Jennifer. It's Dr. Wendy. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. How are you? Tell me about your dream. So I have this reoccurring dream every now and again where um, I get too many teeth in my mouth. Oh. And I have these hundreds of teeth growing in my mouth, and I can't even talk. Oh. And it's very odd. And they're not falling out. You're just growing too no. many. No, I'm just growing too many. And they're like, they're kind of wiggly and loose, but they don't fall out. Ah, and tell me a little bit about the feeling you have when you have these dreams. Um, kind of feeling like, um, just like I can't talk. It's very embarrassing. Okay. I don't want to open my mouth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so embarrassment... You can't talk. It's you can't physically talk, but you want to. Yes. Right. No. Well, it's not like I can't physically talk. Like I don't want to talk because it's embarrassing. I don't want to open my mouth because you don't want people to see all this wiggly. So, you know, it's funny that you say this because the more common recurring dream that people have is their teeth actually falling out, right? That they have teeth just falling out of their mouth, and a lot of it. In your case, I'm going to say it has to do with self-esteem, this feeling of embarrassment if you say the wrong thing, if you, you know, that it'll wiggle 
and it'll be you'll be loose and you're not quite sure. Is this ringing true to you? Yeah, that is that's a very interesting um, thought on that. I do see I do see a bit of that that I am very um, shy in that aspect. Yeah, and you're worried. So I think yeah. that having that realization, and this is what's great about dream therapy, having that realization can actually help get you stronger. So I'm going to give you a little advice. When you go to bed tonight, I'm going to ask you to call that dream up again. And this time, I'm going to ask you to make sure there are fewer teeth and that they're more secure. There we go, Jennifer. Let's see what happens. Uh, Rachel, it's Dr. Wendy. Hi, you got a dream for me? I do. Most of my entire life, I have dreamt about an alligator being in a pond or, or a swimming pool. And it's usually similar. The, the water shape is very similar. And, and what shape uh, is that? Um, a very natural, like a kidney-type shape, except more edges than just a kidney, straight-up kidney shape. Mm-hmm. And um, with lots of foliage around, and I have to navigate my way through the... Um, surrounding terrain, um, but always this alligator is there lurking. Mm-hmm. And then recently, about two months ago, mm-hmm. I woke up and I said, oh, my God, I killed the alligator. I, in my dream, I actually killed it. How did you kill it? How did I kill it? I don't remember. But you know uh, you had just, the feeling that the alligator I, was no longer there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then recently in all the news, there have been all these alligator attacks, and, and I'm going, oh, my God, there's an alligator in a swimming pool and attacked, and I'm going, those are just like in my dreams. Okay, so uh, we have to go to a break. Can you hang in there, Rachel, because I want to think about this over the break and come back and give you my analysis. Okay. Okay, Thank hang you. on. We'll be right back. You're listening to KFI AM 640. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Larry Perel has the news for us. KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. And on the line, I have Rachel, who's been... We're doing my drive-by makeshift dream analysis. Hi, Rachel. Hello. So uh, you dream that... uh, You've had a recurrent dream for many years that there's an alligator in a pond. The ponds are always a similar shape, kind of kidney-shaped with more edges, but surrounded by foliage. And part of your job has been to navigate the surrounding terrain. And the alligator's just there looking, right? Um, watching, looking, um, if I were to get in the water, it would swim toward me, but never really in the attack mode. So what is, what is your, if I ask you to give me an emotion associated with alligators, what would it be? I, well, I think of it as almost like a totem, Mm. um, that, um, it's from my Louisiana heritage, Mm-hmm. And I have had some interactions in the swamps of, or marshes in Louisiana with alligators. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, nothing happened. Right. Um, but I always think that they are looking out for me. Interesting. So it's actually almost a comforting feeling that he's looking and he's watching or she, whatever the alligator is. All right. Um, and then a couple months ago, you dreamt you I killed, killed the alligator. Um, yes. What was going on in your life a couple months ago? Actually, I started having the best of my life mm. after lots and a, a lifetime of trauma, abuse, 
um, lots of different negative things happening, and I feel like I've I've started. Um, my, you know, I've waited 50 years for my career to take off, you know, one of those overnight sensations of 50 years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm at the place that I've dreamt about uh, when, I, when I thought about this career that I'm, I'm on. So and interesting that you use the term, I'm at the place that I dreamt about. Because you're calling to tell me about a dream. And so... Yeah. I think that there, during those years of struggle and trauma, your alligator represented both your roots and your comfort, but also the threat, right? It was also something that was very real in your early life that could have been a danger. And so the fact that you killed the alligator tells me it's about identity transformation, that you're needing the totem less and you're also needing the fear less because you're finding the best in your life. And you don't have to navigate around the foliage too much anymore. Um, you're able to sort of walk and swim freely across that pond. So when you go to bed tonight, ask for the uh, pond to come back and have a nice swim in it. I think you deserve it. Thank you, Rachel. All right, Trisha, it's Dr. Wendy. We're doing our drive-by makeshift dream analysis. Hi, Trisha. It's Dr. Wendy. Hi, Dr. Wendy. This is a, a, a reoccurring, it's not really a dream, but it's a theme that I've had for 30 years since my first marriage at 21. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had erotic dreams. I'm not going to say anything bad that anybody has to dump. Mm-hmm. But um, I've had erotic dreams where I was involved with either, or I was um, in an intimate situation with a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. But I, even though I wanted to participate, I resisted, completely resisted, because I thought it was cheating, even in my dream. Fascinating. And and I don't think that's fair. I really don't. (laughs) Yeah, we should be able to do anything we want in our dreams, right? (laughs) I think, yeah, but I was raised Catholic, Uh, so that might have something to do with it. Enough said. Uh, Okay, so let me just say this. Did you hear the very first part of... Uh, my show today when I was talking about uh, Kinsey's scale of sexuality, that it is yeah. both in behavior and thought, right? One to so, six, right? Mo- yeah, most of us actually are bisexual. We have the ability to be bisexual given the situation. That is more normal for humans, believe it or not, than to be 100% straight or 100% gay. So this feels like a very normal dream for a human being to have, sometimes having fantasies about same-sex relationships. But it's this feeling of you can't do it that um, is sort of interesting to me. And and I think maybe it also represents, it's just sort of a dream's version of boundaries. I mean, we would all in real life like to have sex with everybody we're attracted to. Wouldn't that be fun? But obviously, <laughs> it can cause a lot of problems, right? So I think uh-huh. the dream also represents that, you know, you've got good boundaries in your real life and you know not to go there. But if you want to allow yourself to have a more exciting fantasy life in your dreams, I would ask you to give permission uh, to do that. So when you go to sleep tonight, just ask yourself to bring some erotic dream that you'll allow yourself to have. Thanks for calling, Trisha. Okay, we have last one. Jim. Hi, Jim. It's Dr. Wendy. Oh, Jim's gone. 
Trisha's gone. Some, he said somebody was gone, and I heard it in my ear, and I was like, okay. All right, so let me just wrap up a little bit about dreams. I'm sorry I rushed you then, Trisha, because I would have said more, but I thought Jim was waiting. See how that goes? You guys, if you call, you got to hang in there. I know. Sometimes there are bad cell sites on the freeways. Um, so our dream life can be so powerful, and one of the things I recommend that people do on a regular basis is when you're in that half-asleep, half-awake state, when you're first waking up in the morning, and allow yourself, at least on the weekends, to have a good long sleep in so you stay in that half-asleep, half-awake stage, grab your dreams from your memories right then. And before you even get up and go to the restroom, just have a pen and paper beside your bed and just jot down a few key words to help you remember that last dream that you had in the morning. And then if you continue to keep dream journals, you will actually be able to connect the dots, see recurring themes, and as Sigmund Freud would say, your pre-conscious material will become conscious to you. And it is amazing, and look particularly for your choice of words. I mean, when Rachel said she's now living the dream, she's living what she had dreamed before. Um, look for the way you choose certain kinds of words. Um, and you can learn a lot more about yourself because at the end of the day, the most important relationship that we will ever have is our relationship with ourself. And uh, one of the reasons why I use relationships as my lens to look at psychology is because often, you know, when we're alone, we don't have any psychiatric disorders, none at all. When we're all alone, you could be crazy all by yourself on the side of a mountain and nobody would know, even you. It is through interaction with others that our psychology enlivens. And so, you know, doing the work of intra-psychology inside yourself through dream therapy can help you be a better partner, can help you be a better parent, can help you live a more fulfilling life. All right, enough for dreams. When we come back, where are we going after this? Oh, oh, let's talk about our bodies and how our bodies store trauma. We've, I've got a special guest in the studio who does some very interesting things in her uh, therapy to help us release some trauma. You're listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. You know, I'm always interested to learn about new and different kinds of psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. And until recent years... The scope of practice for most practitioners in mental health was talk-related, unless they were a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and then it was psychopharm-related. And now we are seeing this burgeoning area where therapists are actually getting deeper into our body, doing certain kinds of body work to help relieve trauma, anxiety, depression. So I'm very excited to have a therapist with me right now, Melody Anderson, uh, hi, Melody. Hello. Great uh, to be here. I know you've been practicing in New York and L.A. for 23 years. Mm -hmm. You're a licensed clinical social worker. And I say this over and over to our listeners. They always say, well, what's the difference between a marriage family therapist and a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a licensed clinical social worker? And I go, the only difference is what relationship works for you. Because at the end yeah. of the day, it's the relationship that heals. And it's also the, the social worker is trained that the environment around us causes our neuroses and pain as much as something that's within us or genetics. And so if we don't include the person environment, we're not seeing them as they're affected or affect others around them in a relational way. Right. It's often 
people might even who um, are put in mental health facilities, uh, inpatient facilities, when they're sent out and they're doing so well, all their symptoms come back when they move back in with their family of origin. Yeah, that was the basis actually of of family therapy in the 50s is they started to realize when they sent schizophrenic patients home, they got sick again and then they started creating family therapy. I like to say, you know why our family is so good at pushing our buttons? Because they installed them. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So you can never look at the individual without thinking about who the social world is of that individual and the family work. So let's talk, because I know we want to talk specifically, I know you do traditional talk therapy Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, And she's in Westwood, by the way, Melody Anderson. But um, but you also do some of this interesting body work. And I myself, as a patient, years and years and years ago, um, underwent EMDR. So mm-hmm. that's my favorite because I lived it. So tell me, describe what EMDR is for people well, who don't I'll know. I'll tell you what's so exciting and why I love doing this work is we're always learning. There's always new avenues that open because of research. And there, was a, there is a genius man called Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, K-O-L-K, if anybody wants to get his book. And he was the first one who started doing brain imaging of emotional states of people. And he was the one who discovered that the release of the dopamine from the brain and what happens when somebody is traumatized. And what they started to realize is that when someone is traumatized, their brain shifts the wiring from a feeling of safety in the world and a sense of connection to other people to feeling alone, walking with a sort of uh, a pre- premeditated fear that they're not safe, something is going to get them, and they have to be hypervigilant. Mm-hmm. Then we took that knowledge further into the body because, of course, when the areas of our brain, the emotional part, it's, it's between the right ear and the right eye, it's called the limbic system, gets activated, it connects with our hormone system, which sends out the adrenals and the cortisols. And that's our fight, flight, or freeze hormones. So why do we have them? Well, it's a great survival skill. If I saw a saber-toothed tiger eat you, the next time I saw a saber-toothed tiger, I would either run like heck, <laughs> I would uh, play dead, or if I was you know, insane enough, I'd try and, and fight, fight it. <laughs> or I would go, as they say, play dead or go numb. And numbness is a big thing behind a lot of trauma. Now, what allows me to do that, even if I wanted to fight the tiger? The release of adrenals and cortisols do magic things. They tighten my muscles so I can run faster. They constrict my blood vessels so if the tiger bites me, I won't bleed as much. They make my heart beat faster so I have more energy. So in a crisis situation, they're fantastic survival. But people who have undergone early life trauma envision many more crisis situations than actually exist. Exactly. They're hypervigilant. Because the hormones get stuck on high. Mm -hmm. And so when I was working, I worked with families and addictions. And as I was doing the addiction work, I started to realize how many people also had these early life traumas. And now we're calling it attachment, a sense of a secure attachment Mm. with the caregiver that was taking care of them. So they never learned the the tools to self-soothe when life can be pretty crummy at times. Right. So when that mama's voice says, baby, it's okay. Mama's here. Everything's going to be all right. That becomes your own internalized voice. Yes. And the work by by Vessel Vanderkoek is he saw the actual pathways being etched into the brain. Obviously, they're microscopic when that soothing occurs. Yeah. You know, um, neuroscientists who study attachment theory actually 
poke people in MRIs and have them look at pictures of a loved one, imagine their loved one dying, and watch areas of the brain yeah. light up. And puppies and kittens, too. So let's get to, <laughs> exactly, let's they get to EMDR. Work. What is okay, EMDR? Okay, so what we, what we learned was Bessel van der Kolk was working with a woman called Do, uh, Dr. Francine Shapiro, who created the EMDR. And so she thought, is how can I move all these thoughts that are kind of held in a little walnut thing in our emotional system called the amygdala and move them to the more logical, more mature part of our brain that analyzes um, puts us in, in present time where we're quite safe. So she started to realize if you stimulated the right and the left side of the brain, either with visuals, moving fingers yeah, back and forth. Yeah, my therapist used to do just right? what you did, put her two fingers together and, and went back, back and, and forth. forth like I was watching a high-speed tennis match and my it, eyes would go back and forth and back and forth. Exactly, or tappers or even lights. You know, everybody has their own preference. And I, I want to say that all these tools really allow you to find what works for you. You know, everyone's yeah. a snowflake. So... Yeah. You know, what works, please use it. They all don't have to work to be successful. But it kind of, to explain it in layman's terms, EMDR, which stands for? Eye movement, desensitizing the trauma and reprocessing it in the thinking part of the brain. Right. The person is able to get a distance from the trauma so they don't have the adrenals and cortisols happen when they might hear a song. And it's like opening up the circuit board. So I'll tell you the story. So we were doing EMDR. And she asked me to talk about, there was a particular memory in my childhood having to do with a dentist. Mm -hmm. And I was able, <laughs> I was seven, I was able to tell the story almost in a, um, in a way that wasn't highly emotional. Right. And, um, you know, and you notice when you weren't highly emotional, your body wasn't constricting and activating. And I was able to get, provide more detail mm -hmm. because of not being so emotionally invested while my eyes are going back and forth as right. I'm talking, right? And um, afterwards, when she asked me about my experience with it, I said, retrieving this memory, because this memory hadn't existed except it came up during EMDR, it felt like the feeling, I didn't know how to describe it, but it's like, you know when you're like, leave a restaurant or something and you suddenly go, oh my God, I forgot my purse. And you turn around and run back. That's how it felt like to retrieve the memory. Like, oh my God, I forgot something important. I got to go grab it. It's something important. Um, in my case, I would just, don't feel sorry for me, folks. I've been through seven years of psychotherapy. I'm very therapized. But <laughs> and this, I'm here for her trauma work, so this, don't worry. <laughs> this dentist, if you could not open your mouth wide enough, would put this, cover your nose and put the suction down your throat mm. until you passed out. Mm. Suffocate. I mean, almost killing little children. Wish you could mm. find him. 40 years later. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so EMDR is one. We have to okay. wrap. Stay around for okay. the break because we want to talk about some other somatic work and neuroaffective touch. I am with Melody Anderson. She is a practicing licensed clinical social worker in Westwood. You're listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news. <laughs> You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you, but you have two shrinks. Two shrinks in <laughs> two one shrinks show. In one show. Amazing. <laughs> I am with Melody Anderson. You can find her at counselingbymelody, M E L O D Y dot com. She has been practicing for 23 years. She's in Westwood. Um, and we're talking about that she does a lot of really interesting body work, but. Very nice of you. You've decided to bring some skills that we can all use for all my listeners today. So let's talk about some of the skills that we can use to Absolutely. make us all a little bit more sane. Absolutely. As I was saying, you know, the study of the brain has given us insight 
or certain trauma tools. And then we realize that what's happening in the brain is creating, uh, uh, when the adrenals and cortisols, the fight, flight, or fear hormones are, are sent out through the body, we tighten our body. There's a physical change. And what this new body work is, is instead of going into the lurid, horrendous pieces of telling the trauma story, is we get people to be aware of when their body's changing before a triggering thought. It could be conscious or unconscious. You can smell something and suddenly go back to a, a mm-hmm. horrible time. So in this work, we're getting them body conscious. So the moment they start to feel a tightness in their throat, their head, their chest, the core area, even maybe their hands or their feet or their thighs, we give them these tools. And I love them because they happen and make a change within 10 to 20 seconds. Okay, do one to me. Can you change me in 10 seconds? Yes, and if you're you're going to try this at home, please don't be driving. Yes. Or pull over. No drivers right now doing this. Just listen. This is my... My, my One of my favorite, it's a nurturing touch where you take your hand, whichever hand you want, and place it on your heart and feel the weight of that. And as you feel the weight of that, you might even feel some temperature. And for those of you sitting at home, I just invite you to notice what's going on inside. My heart feels hot. Okay, that's great. Again, there's no right or wrong in this work. That's why I like it, too. Anything you notice in the sensations of your heart. We're not talking about feeling words. We're talking about sensation shifts here. It feels heavier since I put a weight on it. Great. Is that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Mm. It feels very relaxed, which also feels unpleasant because I'm supposed to be on right now (laughs) and not relaxed. I'll get you back. Don't worry. (laughs) So... When you say that you're relaxed, where do you feel the area? Is it a a tight area? Is it softening? My tightness is always in my upper neck at the base of my skull and all the muscles around my skull because I'm thinking hard. I'm going to slow you from, see, I'm going to take her folks from her brilliant mind into her brilliant (laughs) body. So let's go back to where your hand is on your chest. Mm-hmm. Just notice the weight. You can open or close your eyes. Notice if there's a temperature change. And notice if there's an edge to this relaxation that's occurring. And just gently breathe out. Just be aware of the outbreath. And notice if there's a color or it's pulsating. And if you can spread the color. I see all the rainbow colors of the Pride Parade. Okay, so I w- see she's in her head again, folks. <laughs> bring her back to her heart. Just feel the weight of your hand on the heart. Just focus on what... And that's what's hard about this work for everybody, is initially we're in our head thinking there's a right answer. or No, we just bring our attention to our body instead of our brains. And as we do this, it's usually softening. And the reason there's a softening is this nurturing touch starts to lower the adrenals, the cortisols starts to release our natural opiates and our feel-good hormones and all those fight flight or free freeze hormones start to drop and we get back into our body and the great thing is is when we're centered and sometimes you can put weight on your feet flat on the floor, floor to ground yourself as we're centered we're back in the thinking part of our brain instead of the emotional part so wendy as i was saying this did you notice anything else no just feeling my muscles relax. That's good enough. I mean, to me, that's a success. So if anybody at home felt that, that's great. 
And I also want to bring in the, the power of the five senses, either where you are or coming up with a resource. Mine's the mountains in Canada. Aww. Of your five senses when you go to that resource. And again, we're just observing the body. What do you smell, taste, hear, feel, see? And mine, uh, is, mine is a beach walk. A beach I walk. love the taste of the salty air and the sounds of those seagulls. Okay, so as you're telling me this, again, notice what's happening inside. Sometimes if you're remembering a place, it's good to close your eyes and see it more clearly. And as you remember, what did you smell? What did you taste? That salty, you know, low tide smell. Great. And what it's a little fishy. And what did you hear? Those seagulls squawking. And in the distance, the chil- children laughing and their laughter on the wind. Okay, so I'm going to bring her back to her body. And I'm going to say, how do you feel now? I feel too relaxed to do no, radio. No, no, we'll bring you back. <laughs> and also, this is great if you have pain to focus on the area of the body that don't hurt, the end of the nose, the earlobes, and the back of your hands. Good luck, everybody. Thank you so much Check for being with website. us. Check out my website. Melody Anderson. You can find her at Counseling by Melody, M-E-L-O-D-Y. Thank you for coming to the studio. It's always a pleasure to have somebody right here. When we come back, I want to talk about intergenerational trauma. And how it can affect you and your family today, some of the oppression that your ancestors went through. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Uh, is it Michael Chappé or Larry Perel in it's, there? It's, it's me. You're it's still Larry. There. Still I'm still Larry. here. Yeah, hi. <laughs> hi, Larry. <laughs> KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. You know, for the last couple of years, I've been tinkering with a book. When I say tinkering, I have uh, eight chapters of 16 written and a full uh, layout. Uh, so I know it's coming out of me eventually. And it's about it's a book about intergenerational psychology. And it's an area that is so interesting to me. Um, I'll tell you briefly that my grandmother was born on a rock in the North Atlantic, the daughter of a light keeper. And they nearly starved to death. Uh, one provision ship would stop by in late September and drop probably a bag of flour, some sugar, and a cow. They would hoist an entire cow up the cliff, and then the family would live off those provisions, a few roots from the root cellar, and they would milk the cow and make enough butter and cheese until the cold weather came and the shed, the cow's shed, would become cold enough to become a meat locker. This is before refrigeration. Uh, My grandmother was only four foot nine, I'm five foot ten, uh, and it's sort of interesting that she was so tiny, and that was probably from malnutrition. And it was probably a traumatic, difficult time. But you know, there were a lot of kids. There's not much to do in this dark, cold, scary winter storm. So uh, there were 13 children born in that lighthouse, and who knows how many died as babies. There was a little graveyard on the island now, and um, how many miscarriages were there. And then my mother, her daughter lived with a, a mother who was actually kind of, interestingly enough, cold to her and very emotionally avoidant, partly because she was jealous because my mother apparently was the pretty sister and her got a lot of attention from her dad, and this made the mother jealous. So when my mother, unbeknownst to me, I knew none of this until a couple of years ago, um, had an unexpected teenage pregnancy back in 1948, there was no, nothing to do except never tell a soul or your father will beat the heck out of you. And so she took a train alone a thousand miles to a big city to stay with her sister for six months and quietly give birth. And there was nobody to help her deal with postpartum depression. 
And she dealt with this kind of trauma, this loss of a child and loss of her own childhood, as it will, and the heartbreak, because the story goes that maybe the father of the baby was married and didn't tell her, et cetera. Um, she dealt with it. It came out in all kinds of ways in how she parented me. And um, so I was researching this book and also researching the science behind intergenerational psychology. For instance, one of the studies I found was a mouse study. Fascinating. And it's you know heartbreaking to think, but they will take pregnant mice and induce a lot of stress on them and then look at the neurochemistry and the behavior of the babies born of those pregnant mice. And what they find is that first generation is often pretty calm. They've figured out ways to maneuver life. They don't have a lot of depression, anxiety. But then their daughters would have terrible mental health issues. So it's almost like the genes change, but often skip a generation. And now there's more and more research on what happens to our genes because of experience. Remember, biology and our environment are constantly pushing up against each other and changing and shaping each other. So let's talk about this particular generation and, and what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of cultural trauma, right? We're seeing uh, people who are granddaughters and grandsons of Holocaust survivors. Uh, we see um, people whose families' ancestors suffered very difficult lives as immigrants uh, living in poverty, working their way up in America. Um, of course, African Americans in this country live with the oppression of their ancestors in their bones, and not just because of slavery, also those many years of Jim Crow laws and the segregation that existed in this country. And interestingly enough, I have this theory that a lot of what we're seeing now, because we, we are actually at the healthiest and most affluent than we've ever been as a culture, but weirdly enough, we also have the highest depression and anxiety rates. And we are seeing these big movements. And I believe, like, we are doing the emotional work, our un the unfinished emotional work of our parents and grandparents. Um, and look no further than the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, look at these cultural shifts um, of course, today, as I mentioned, I spent the day at the Pride Festival. Um, people are starting to come forward, act out in a positive way, finish off the work of their, their ancestors. But if you do have intergenerational trauma, and sometimes it may be sexual abuse. I mean, I have cousins who suggest that maybe the love... My fingers are making quotation marks. The love that my grandfather had for my mother went a little further than just favored daughter, if you know what I mean. There may have been sexual abuse there. Um, and that's why the messages my own mother gave me about sexuality were very, very negative, very aligned with the Catholic Church. All sin, all wrong. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Now get married. Good luck. Uh, and so it was almost this big white Catholic wedding was almost forced on me, emotionally forced on me at the tender age of 20. Um, I never married again, by the way. I had a college marriage, and that was it. It's almost like it feels like it's, it's something that feels like pressure to me. But if you do have intergenerational trauma, if your parents, if your grandparents suffered some kind of abuse, there are ways that it can affect you today. And sadly, many families actually coped with intergenerational trauma 
by employing what I would say are two really unhealthy coping mechanisms. One is denial, just refusing to acknowledge the trauma happened at all. And the other is minimization. Minimization is ignoring the impact of the trauma, making the traumatic experience feel smaller than it really is, dismissing it. And, you know, Josh, can I, can I chat with you a moment? Yes, you can. <laughs> Yom Tov. Josh, Josh is our technical director, and he happened to disclose to me before the show, and I did get his permission to talk to him yes, about this. Yes, she did. That um, his grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Yes, they were. And the coping mechanisms that I just talked about were kind of the coping mechanisms that your family employed. Yeah, there was uh, not a lot of talking about it. Um, I, I knew from a young age, like I used to, the perfect example is I used to run around when I was a young kid before I knew better, I like, call myself a Polak because I thought I was Polish. I was like, oh great, I'm from Poland. My parents would always be like, no, not around your grandparents. You're Jewish, you're not Polish, you know? Like stuff like that, yeah. you know, that you had to start to realize. And yeah, there was just not a lot of, I knew my grandparents, you know, the belief in God was definitely affected by it. A lot uh -huh. of their religious beliefs, like, cause they were married back in Europe, you know? they, they mm -hmm. So when they, you know, it was, it was rough. So and how do you think it impacted it you, this no talking but real huge trauma in the past? How um, do you think it impacted you? I always, I, I, I think it, I don't think it had a huge negative effect on me. I was always big on just recognizing the fact that it happened. So whenever I hear someone deny its existence, that really sets me off. Right. You know, like, I'll like come to my house, like, you know, they're resting with uh, God now, but well, come if, to my house and say that. If you know? I can be like, so bold <laughs> as to diagnose you on air, I will say that you are very conscientious. Conscientious yes. meaning detail-oriented, organized, making sure that everything is okay, because if it's not, I know that you can have a lot of anxiety about that. I can, yes. Yeah. I definitely have anxiety that uh, builds up, so that could that could definitely yeah. stem and from that and not talking about it. Yeah, that's like what Melody Anderson was saying, is that it, it's like the fight-or-flight response is so visceral that you want to make sure that you're over-organized to prevent that. Um, okay, when we come back, let's talk about the ways that intergenerational trauma might affect you and things that you can do about it. You're listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We're talking about an area that I'm fascinated with intergenerational psychology the fact that trauma from your grandparents your great-grandparents can actually change dna sometimes it is transmitted physically anxiety depression mental health issues sometimes it is transmitted emotionally as i call it emotionally transmitted diseases in other words the way parents parented become the way the next generation parents, and it continues to exacerbate the problem. What children need is they need to be seen. They need to be heard. They need their emotions to be respected and understood. They need to be soothed by a primary caregiver so that those soothing voices will become their internal voice that will help them learn to manage their own feelings. Because when we have poor mental health or something that would be, that we could get a clinical diagnosis, it is usually that either the emotions are hugely amplified in relation to what's actually happening, often relating to old trauma in your own life or your ancestors' lives, or we just have trouble 
managing scary feelings because nobody told us that it's okay to feel a rainbow of feelings. You know, we're all meant to be able to feel joy and happiness and surprise and trepidation and embarrassment and shame, embarrassment's cousin, shame, and um, anger and frustration and fear. And when we have those feelings, they are very important indicators that something's not right in the environment and that we need to change or shift. But some of us have those feelings when things are actually okay in the environment. Or those feelings start to bubble up and we are so terrified of them, they don't even have a name. We've never been given the ability to give names to our feelings that we just squelch it and push it down. And feelings that get smothered and pushed down start to intertwine with our body. Our body is still, it's, it's taking in the tension. It's taking in the stress. One of the reasons why talk therapy has worked so well for so many people is it helps them put names to their feelings and it helps them pass the feelings from emotional areas of the brain into the prefrontal cortex where they can think about what's really happening. So I mentioned I would talk about ways that intergenerational trauma affects our families today. And the first thing is that people, just as I mentioned, people may struggle with emotions. Older generations set the stage, right? Knowingly or unknowingly, hey, it's not their fault. They went through trauma, right? And there was no army of psychotherapists helping them deal with it. When I mentioned in 1948, my mother went alone as a teenager to a cold hospital room and met strangers who helped her give birth and remove that baby from her life. She never saw her baby. Um, And nobody was there to give her postpartum counseling. She simply got on the train and went home and never spoke a word of it for the rest of her life. Interestingly enough, my mother suffered from lupus, which is um, an autoimmune disease where your body attacks healthy tissue, your immune system attacks healthy tissue. And I feel like this was her trauma living out through her body. She loved doctors, was always going to doctors, because I think it was her body speaking for her in many ways. You should know that I did find that brother, by the way, a few years ago. My new brother, Mike, is fabulous. And it's like my mother, who's been dead 20 years, my mother being brought back to life. It's like somebody took her beautiful blue eyes and just implanted them in his head. And all his uh, humor is hers. It's great. So generations may struggle with emotions. Also, trauma can limit parent-child relationships. When I found out that my mother had had that baby and didn't tell us and that he was living just hours from us, I was so angry. She was long passed away. I was so mad because I was thinking, if she kept this secret from us, what other secrets did she keep from us? You know, she felt like a fraud to me. It was like everything was gone. So when you don't disclose things, you don't have trust. And also, unresolved psychiatric problems can lead to psychiatric problems in the next generation. For instance, borderline personality uh, disorder. Borderline personality disorder, it's where, um, it's really common where families have intergenerational trauma. Um, And it's that people are either, they love somebody or they hate somebody, they have trouble managing all the in-betweens. Um, and, and all mental health issues, by the way, have a partly biological piece and partly environmental piece. You can't only blame parents for our situation. It's both. Um, 
So what do we do about it? What do we do with this? Well, it is up to us to have a better relationship with ourselves so that we can have a better relationship with our loved ones, whether that be our primary romantic figure, our spouse, whether it is our children, but is really incumbent on us to get to know both the biological inheritance that we have that may be causing us stress and also to learn to have better coping mechanisms, learn to take care of ourselves better, both mentally and physically. And whether that means going to traditional psychotherapy, doing some of the body work that Melody Anderson mentioned in the last couple segments, um, whether you're doing it through yoga and mindfulness, whether you're getting regular massages, we can, which can bring a lot of dopamine and oxytocin and calm uh, your system, whether you're doing it through dream therapy and writing down your dreams, um, that doing the work is the best gift you can give yourself. It is the best way that you can move forward in life. Wow. Are we at the end of two hours already, Joey? Don't we say this every week that this show needs to be three hours because there's so much stuff I want to get into? Well, I want you to have a great week. Thank you so much for being with me for the last two hours. I'm here every Wednesday in the 1 o'clock hour with Gary and Shannon. That's usually a little more lightweight fun. And always here every Sunday from 4 to 6. Thank you so much for being with me. This has been the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Mo Kelly is next.